before I speak, well, watch this very short video. It's amazing. And then when that's over, then I'll share some things with you. So I'm ready. Uh, I'll take this microphone and I'll put it right here so it'll pick up the sound. This chapter of the apocalyptic book of John the Revelator presents a graphic portrayal of two megalomaniac beasts, powers that rule at some time during the history of planet Earth, whose ability to influence and dictate extend to the furthest corners of the globe. It is revealed through biblical evidence that these powers receive their authority from the dragon, which according to the scriptures is Satan. It is further revealed through the symbolic language contained in this chapter that a cosmic battle of gigantic proportions between good and evil is finding its tangible fulfillment in the physical activities of human affairs. Lucifer's strategy of destruction and revenge was comprehensive and multifaceted in its dimensions. But at the core of his plan was the desire to usurp the worship that belonged to God alone and direct it toward himself. Historian Thomas Hobbes says, if a man consider the origin of the great ecclesiastical dominion, he will easily perceive that the papacy is none other than the ghost of the deceased Roman Empire sitting crowned upon the grave thereof. Okay, so Rome is not really God. It's called the Roman Catholic Church. The Most Holy Councils, Volume 13, Rome says, we define that the Holy Apostolic See and the Roman Pontiff holds the primacy of how much of the world? So he says it himself. Pope Leo said, we hold upon this earth the place of God Almighty. And the Pope, the Bull Unum Sanctum, uh, put forth uh, by Boniface the eighth in thirteen o three, says that he is equal with God, and in fact he is God on earth. I quoted my book. So the Pope, because he believes he's God on earth, he always dresses in white, and that's why every political visitor to the Pope always dresses in black. system be able to infiltrate all other bodies, religious and political, to realize her agenda of global control. In this case, one does not have to look too far to begin to expose the methods and mechanisms by which she would accomplish this task. So we have this great Hegelian dialectic going on since 1536, when the Jesuit order was founded. So the Jesuits uh, revived Freemasonry for the purpose of expanding their temporal power. So by 1750, you had Masons in every court. The Jesuit oath of the fourth vow, which is the last vow that they take before they become uh, commanders, uh, you know, the leaders and that, they come right out and state exactly uh, you know, how they infiltrate uh, 
any religious group they want, they'll come in pretending to be a Pentecostal, pretending to be a Baptist, pretending to be, you know, anything they want to, you know, and uh, ingratiating themselves into the various congregations, taking the leadership role, and then completely subverting. I furthermore promise and declare that I will wage relentless war, secretly or openly, against all heretics, Protestants, and liberals, to excavate and exterminate them from the face of the whole earth. And that I will hang, burn, waste, boil, and flay, and strangle and bury alive these infamous heretics, rip up the stomachs of the world with their work, and crush their infant heads against the walls in order to annihilate forever their execrable race. and Voltaire, author of the Charter of Human Rights and both motivators of the French Revolution, were Jesuit trained and included the essence of that institution's philosophy and methodology. The grand design exposed said, the truth is the Jesuits of Rome have perfected Freemasonry to be their most magnificent and effective tool accomplishing their purposes among Protestants. Freemasonry themselves must be deceived because if they saw it, they wouldn't do it, right? So actually, the order is being used and they themselves are deceived. And only within the order, higher up, are those chosen ones who know they are controlled by the Jesuits for Rome. Very clever. Very clever to make Protestantism do what you cannot do openly because you have been fingered by Protestantism as the Antichrist. The religio-political claims of the papal system and the prophetic time frames given for her rule 
many modern-day biblical scholars and researchers into secret subversive organizations have concluded that no other institution other than Rome can fit the prophetic profile. Added to these evidences is the testimony of the Protestant reformers who clearly, through their own studies of Daniel and Revelation, saw Rome as the Antichrist power described in Bible prophecy. Revelation 13.7 says, And power was given him over all kindred and tongue and nation. That's scary. Not only does Papal Rome rule for the 1,260-42 month period, but its authority is once again revived. Not only through the actions of Mussolini and Gaspari in 1929, but through the help of another beast. A power that arises out of the earth and causes the whole earth to follow Rome in her new revived form. America was founded as a Christian nation, but it was also founded as an occult nation. And there have always been two parallel forces here in America. One the Christian, one the occult, dating back into the 1600s. And until you understand that, you can't understand anything going on in the world today. From the very beginning, those who were trying to establish the nation of America and formulate the laws that would govern her people were caught between two agendas. The one agenda had lamb-like qualities that sought to avoid repeating the oppressive history of a Europe ruled by papal religio-political authority. The other agenda, although it outwardly preached liberation, was striving to set up an occult-inspired order that would finally lead all nations back to Rome. The Civil War would never have been possible without the sinister influence of the Jesuits. We owe it to Popery that we now see our land resin with the blood of our noble son. Through all their councils, theologians, and canon laws, their conscience orders them to burn my wife, strangle my children, and cut my throat when they find their opportunity. Sooner or later, the light of common sense will make it clear to everyone that no liberty of conscience can be granted to who are sworn to obey a pope, who pretends to have the right to put to death those who differ from him in religion. Rome fought hard to destroy the lamb-like attributes of the American Constitution. Through her secret army, the Jesuits, and the various other sinister organizations she controlled, she infiltrated American society and government, and where necessary, fomented discord, controversy, and division. Decade after decade, Rome silently infiltrated the highest echelons of American society until finally the dragon-like qualities of America began to reveal its shadowy visage. Meanwhile, Rome had not forgotten her agenda to re-establish her authority in Europe. Using the same strategy she was employing in America, she set about infiltrating the religious and political powers on the continent. Her task was easier in that familiar environment and very quickly began to bear fruit. While she was actively involved in setting up a socialist regime in Russia, she just as ardently worked at establishing the occult Jesuit-inspired system of Adolf Hitler's Nazi Germany. And according to the Jesuits, their own house organ, uh, La Civilta Catolica, they say fascism is the form of government that comports most with the Roman Catholic Church.
So fascism is internationalist. It's expansionist. It's dominated by monopolistic corporations the Knights of Malta, Malta own. And it talks about God, quote unquote. Communism, on the other hand, is internationalist. It's expansionist. It's oppressive. It has concentration camps, just like the fascists, except it denies the existence of God. The only difference is in its religious confession. Other than that, it is both systems are identical. And it goes back to the maxims that extremes meet. So fascism and communism are both run by the Jesuit order. Openly, the Jesuits back fascism. Secretly, they rule communism. And they control both leaders at the same time. And then they come and bow down and pay their homage according to the inscription we just read. And the rock band is Italy's band. Music. Three candles. Masonic ritual. That's the Vatican Square. Dalai Lama, the Orthodox, the Muslim, the Eastern religion, sun worship, Zoroastrian, all of them. When they do something, they do it well. the second beast of Revelation 13, the USA, that rose up out of the earth was rapidly losing its lamb-like qualities. A Protestant nation that had established itself on principles of religious freedom and justice for all was now reaching its hand across the Atlantic to grasp the hand of Rome. That which would have been unthinkable to America's founding fathers was now becoming a reality. Protestantism shall stretch her hand across the gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power. Our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. The people of the United States have been a favored people, but when they restrict religious liberty, surrender Protestantism, and give countenance to popery, the measure of their guilt will be full. National apostasy will be registered in the books of heaven. And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their foreheads. When Sunday observance shall be enforced by law, then whoever shall transgress the command of God to obey a precept, which has no higher authority than that of Rome, will thereby honor popery above God. They will thereby accept the sign of allegiance to Rome, the mark of the beast.
A power from beneath is working to bring about the last great scenes in the drama. Satan coming as Christ and working with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in those who are binding themselves together in secret societies. Those who are yielding to the passion for confederation are working out the plans of the enemy. The cause will be followed by the effect. While many leaders are active agents of Satan, God also has his agents among the leading men of the nation. When the final warning shall be given, it will arrest the attention of these leading men. Which kingdom will you be subject to? Whose mark of authority will be inscribed in the recesses of your brain and manifest in the action of your hands? How long must Elijah all those thousands of years ago on Mount Carmel, in the presence of all of Israel, the prophets of Baal and King Ahab, how long, he asked, halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if thou, then follow him. That was amazing, wasn't it? So, all of these things are in fulfillment of the book of Revelation, Daniel and Revelation. And I'm just glad we have a wonderful Savior who all understands all these things. We don't have to be afraid, isn't that right? No fear with God's people. We just want to have our eyes open and not be sleeping, it says, as others, so that we'll know what to do. Understanding these things helps us to know that time is short, isn't that right? And that we need to get the three angels' messages to the world as never before in our lives. And uh, it's a real joy knowing what's going on. That's why God reveals prophecy to help us know these things so that we won't be in the dark and sleeping as others, it says. Now, um, let's take our Bible and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 13. Revelation 13. And turn to verse, let's start in verse 11, Revelation 13, 11, because it's in verse 11 where it talks about our country. Actually, verse 1 to 10 identifies the first beast, which is the papacy. Verse 11 starts describing the second beast. The first beast came up out of the sea, re representing many, many people, a densely populated area of Europe. The second beast, in verse 11, or the United States, comes up out of the earth. The earth is just the opposite from the sea. The earth is a wilderness area. And of course, there were the Indians here, the Indian tribes, but compared to the dense populations of Europe, uh, the United States was a wilderness. So verse 11 says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth, 
and he had two horns like a lamb, and he spake as a dragon. You can see a big change there. Lamb-like horns are fitly represented by the American what? What kind of animal that has two horns like a lamb that were scattered all over this country until they killed most of them? That's right, the American buffalo. And uh, a peaceful, two horns like a lamb. That was a good animal to represent the United States. But the very next phrase says, and he spake as a dragon. Now in the Bible, who is the dragon? It's Satan, that's right. So it's revealing in one sentence that this lamb-like a uh, wonderful nation, the greatest nation on earth uh, that God has blessed so wonderfully and he's still blessing it. Uh, one day something would happen, it uh, reveals that this nation that's like a lamb would speak as a dragon. So we see something would have to happen to this nation. Are these things happening to our nation now? Yes, it is. And you can already see dragon-like qualities as... Uh, now, we know that the first beast, that the rule of that beast is passed. The National Sunday Law will not be pushed in the United States by Rome, but rather by Protestants who have been infiltrated by agents of Rome, uh, kind of uh, instructing them what to do, controlled by Rome, but Rome will be in the background in this country, and it will be Protestants that do that, controlled by agents of Rome. But in Europe... It'll be Rome itself that does that. Uh, now, verse 12, and he exercises, it's still talking about the um, U.S., he exerciseth, notice the E-T-H on the end of that word. Whenever you see an E-T-H on the end of a verb in the New Testament, it always means continuous action. Now, the New Testament was written in what language? Greek. So whenever you, the, I took Greek, and uh, the rule of grammar in Greek is that whenever you have a present tense verb, it always means continuous action. And what, how do we know if it's a, a present tense verb? If it has an E-T-H on the end of it in the King James Bible. Uh, so here it says, uh, verse 12, and he exerciseth. That means he, the United States, continually exercises all the power of the first beast before him and causeth, there's that ETH again, constantly causes the earth and them which dwell therein to worship the first beast who deadly, whose deadly wound was healed. Uh, it's all through the New Testament. The same rule applies, and that helps you understand more. Like when um, uh, the... You, a ruler came to Jesus, and Jesus was on his way to his house to heal his uh, servant. Uh, I'm sorry, it was uh, it was the daughter. <laughs> it was the man that uh, had his daughter. Uh, yes, that's right, Jairus. And he was going to heal him, but all of a sudden a servant comes through and says, don't bother the master, she's dead. And Jesus turns to him, and he says, fear not, only believe. You know, that word believe is a present tense verb. What Jesus was really saying was, fear not, keep on believing. Keep on believing. Don't let this bother you. Keep on believing. That's really a blessing to me to understand that just that little thing, 
in the uh, the present tense verb means continuous action. Uh, do you like that, that you learned that? Verse 13, and he doeth, there's that ETH again. That means he's constantly doing great wonders so that he maketh, constantly maketh, fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. Okay, verse 14, and deceiveth them, constantly deceiving them that dwell on the earth by means of those miracles which he had power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by sword and did live. And he had power, the U.S. again, had power to give life unto the image of the beast. Now, the beast is Rome. What would the image of the beast be? It would be an image of the same thing. It would be a group acting just like the Catholics acted in Europe, uh, persecuting. And, of course, in this country, it'll be Protestants doing that, uh, infiltrated and having the same power or having the same spirit as the papacy had when she did the same work in Europe hundreds of years ago. Um, and so it causes them to have make this image. So since the beast uh, power, the U.S., uh, uh, has this image to be made, that shows there'll be a union of the Protestant ministers with American politicians. Isn't that something? Protestant ministers and American politicians will be getting together to support each other. The ministers will influ influence their congregations to help elect just the right man that will get what they want done. And the politicians will be catering to the ministers in order to get those votes. So they'll be working together. And that's why this verse reveals uh, this very union here. It says, saying to them, U.S. Uh, civil government leaders, say to them that dwell on the earth, that they should make an image to the beast. In other words, you're going to set up, we're going to have empower the religious system in our nation to do the very things uh, that Rome did and, and, and copy, it'll make an image of it. It says, which had a wound by a sword and did live. So the main thing that Rome did and her mark, the mark of her authority, they openly tell what the mark of Rome's authority is and what is the mark of Rome's authority that they brag about. That's right, changing the Sabbath to the first day of the week, to Sunday. They brag about it, as I put in my book, National Sunday Law. And they're pr very proud of that because that shows, if people accept that, that shows that Rome and the Pope are greater than God and greater than the law of God. And so you can see all this exposing all of this is part of the third angel's message. And this is why most Seventh-day Adventists aren't doing it. <laughs> Either they're ignorant of these things and they don't even know what the third angel's message is or else they won't do it because they don't want to get persecution. Now, a uh, hundred years ago or so, God's, God, through his prophet, revealed to his people, which they're all dead now, he revealed that there was a book that must be gotten out and it was called The Great Controversy. In that day, it had a power at that time. At that time, a hundred years and some years ago, people didn't have the diversions they have now. They didn't have television, radio, uh, internet, uh, cars. They didn't have any of those things. They just 
we're uh, the society that's all relaxed and sit in front of the fireplace and ride on a horse and buggy and everything's slow, you know. And you could go to a home and you could knock on the door. They didn't have a doorbell, did they? No, because most of them didn't even have electricity. They'd knock on the door and the people would come to the door and they'd say, hello, can I help you? And he would say, yes, um, I have something very wonderful to share with you. Well, come on in, brother, and share. Sit down, have a seat. Uh, sweetheart, get this man something to eat. And uh, uh, they talk a while, and they say, well, it's getting late. Uh, I've got an extra room. Uh, uh, spend the night with us. Stay here for the night, and tomorrow we'll, I'll hear more of what you got to say. When you ring the doorbell today, do people invite you to come in and eat and spend the night? No, they don't do that, do they? They might slam the door in your face or sometimes call the police. And so, you see, God's prophet warned that things would be closed up. And they are closing up very much today. We can't work now like they did a hundred and some years ago. We have to use different methods. A hundred and some years ago, people would read the great controversy. And that's the book that God told to get out. And people would read it. They would read it. Today, I found they most people will not read it. Uh, they might read some of it, but they get bogged down in the dark ages. And, and if you come back uh, even a month later, they don't, still don't know what they need to know. They haven't read it, just like they don't read the Bible. And so, again, that's one reason why the Lord had me to write a book that's very small. It moves fast. Not everybody will read that either. Not everybody will read anything. <laughs> some people can't even read it all. Uh, so there has to be a number of different methods to reach people. Uh, but God knows how to do it. But I found that a lot more people today will read a small book that moves fast and uh, holds their TV minds better. That's why I wrote that in order to do that. Um, let's see. And, of course, God gets all the praise because we can't do anything. It's not even our message. It's God's message. So let's go on here. Now, uh, finally, in verse... Uh, 15, it says, He had power to give life under the image of the beast. The U.S. gives life to the Protestant religion conglomeration, which is all wrapped up, infiltrated by agents of Rome, and, and it's a popular religion claiming Jesus, but denying the power thereof. And one of the uh, marks of Rome is Sunday, so of course they will be pushing that. It says he had power to give life to that image, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause that as many as would not worship the image of the beast should be what? Killed. Now that might sound impossible in our society, uh, but that, verse 15, is the end result. That death decree won't come until probation for the world has closed. Uh, and I'll talk about the succession of things just in a little bit. But this death decree won't come right away. It'll take months and months and months before they finally get to that drastic measure. But before that, verse 16 will happen. It says, And he causeth all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and bind, bond, to receive a mark in their right hand or in their forehead, that's the mark of the beast, and that no man might buy or sell. That's economic boycott, and that will come before the death decree, that no man might by himself save he that had the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. Here is wisdom. Let him that hath understanding number. Count the number of the beast, 
for it is the number of a computer. It doesn't say that, does it? It said it is the number of a what? A man. Not a computer, but a man. And his number is 603 score and 6. That's 666. Um, and you probably didn't realize it or notice it, but all in the Vatican, there's symbols for 666, right in the Bernini's canopy above the Pope's head. There's symbols there of 666 and snakes and sex. They have those three symbols all over the place. Sex symbols, that's why the priests are in trouble in that area. Sex symbols and 666 and images of snakes all over because the word Vatican means divining serpent. That's what the word means. And uh, so the whole thing is just, in fact, the prophet reveals that this power, the, this religious power, is Satan's masterpiece. It's the masterpiece counterfeit of the church of God. If the devil himself could think up something that was a masterpiece of the church of God, it would be that particular religion. Now, this all this is not talking about dear godly Roman Catholic people. It's not talking about them at all. In fact, a lot of those dear people, when they learn about God's truth and Sabbath, they'll come and join us. I get letters from many, many Catholics all the time. And they tell me when they read that book, they said, I was in a state of shock, but I see that it's a truth, and I'm leaving that church forever, and I'm becoming a Seventh-day Adventist. Isn't that beautiful? I get letters like that all the time uh, from Roman Catholics. It's very thrilling to get them from them. And uh, some of them don't even know what church to be in yet. But, of course, they, the first thing they know is to get out of the system they're in. And then they start, start searching for God's true church. And God leads them to be Seventh-day Adventists. Some of them already know about the Seventh-day Adventist church, and when they write the letter, they tell me they've already become Seventh-day Adventists. And others' uh, letters, they tell me they've left the Catholic church, and now they're searching for God's true church. And of course, you know God's going to help them find it. So this is the last verses of Revelation 13. And this very message is a big part of the third angel's message that most Adventists don't even know even exists or are too bashful to give. But do you know, listen to this, it was because God's people in the 1800s did not give this very message that they're dead and we're alive. If they in the 1800s had given this message like God purposed, we would never have been born and they would be in heaven. Isn't that something? We would never get a crown on our head. We'd never be in heaven because that crown that's going to be on your head would be on their head. And they'd be in heaven already. Isn't that something? Well, I'm glad I was born, aren't you? Praise the Lord, we were born. But really, we shouldn't have been born. They should have been in heaven before this. That shows that God's no respecter of persons. And I just uh, almost makes me tremble and say, oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you that you made me to be born. And help me cling to Jesus and not, not forsake you or fail. Help me know how to give your three angels' messages in such a kind way. Um, many There's counterfeits. One counterfeit is that the devil will have people give the message, but with a, me, a mean spirit, you know, like the devil. Then the other ditch is to have a sweet spirit, but not give the message at all and teach error. Those are two ditches. But in the middle, 
are people that teach the pure truth and have the sweet spirit and have both of those. That's what I want, don't you? Okay, now I'm just going to read a little bit of thing to you and then I'm going to give you an illustration. Um, this I'm going to read is from the book Maranatha, 174 to 176. It says, The judgments of God are in the land. We have no time to lose. The world is stirred with a spirit of war. Soon strife among the nations will break out with an intensity that we do not now in anticipate. Of course, that already happened in the First World War, in the Second World War, but it's going to happen again, isn't it? Will there ever be a Third World War? What, will, what does the Bible call it? What does the Bible name for it? The Battle of Armageddon. That will be World War III. And once that battle starts, it won't end until the devil is in the lake of fire and turns to ashes. When he turns to ashes, that battle will be over. And um, so here it says, um, The present is a time of overwhelming interest to all living. Rulers and statesmen and thinking men and women of all classes have their attention fixed upon the events taking place about us. They observe the intensity that is taking possession of every earthly element. Things are intense today, aren't they? Um, and they realize that something great and decisive is about to take place. And the world is on the verge of a stupendous crisis. In the last scenes of this earth's history, war will rage. There will be pestilence, plague, and famine. The waters of the deep will overflow their boundaries. This has already happened. Property and life will happen again. Property and life will be destroyed by fire and flood. We should be preparing for the mansions that Christ has gone to prepare for those that love him. The signs of the times give evidence that the judgments of heaven are being poured out, that the day of the Lord is at hand. The daily papers are full of indications of an intense conflict in the future. Bold robberies are frequent occurrence. Thefts and murders are committed on every hand. Men possessed of demons are taking the lives of men, women, and little children. Has that happened lately? Has anybody shot anybody lately? A whole, shot a whole bunch of people and then he shot himself? Uh, these people, men controlled by demons, are doing it. It says, all these things testify that the Lord's coming is near. The restraining spirit of God is even now being withdrawn from the world. Hurricanes, storms, tempests, disasters by sea and land follow one another in quick succession. Once one is over, you won't have to wait long until another one comes. They're getting more and more frequent calamities like this. Um, it says um, the signs thicken around us, telling us of the near approach of the Son of God. The time is right upon us where there will be sorrow in the world that no human balm can heal. Even before the last great destruction comes, the flattering monuments of men's greatness will be crumbled in the dust. Have you seen any great big giant buildings crumbled in the dust lately? Yes, that's, the prophet saw these things. Uh, God's retributive judgments will fall on those who in the face of light continue to sin. Costly buildings supposed to be fireproof are erected, but as, as Sodom perished in the flames, so will these proud structures become ashes. But amid the tumult of excitement, with confusion in every place, there is a work to be done for God in the world. 
Satan is permitted to have power over the children of disobedience. He hurls destruction upon men. There is calamity by land and sea. Property and life are destroyed by fire and flood. Satan resolves to charge this upon those who refuse to bow to the idol that he set up. His agents point to Seventh-day Adventists as the cause of the trouble. They say, quote, These people stand out in defiance of law. They desecrate Sunday. Were they compelled to obey the law for Sunday observance, there would be a cessation of these terrible judgments. And so it just tells that now is the time to get the last message of God to the world. And of course it is. Now, should we wait until the Sunday law comes before we get the three angels' messages to the people? No. Now is the time. Uh, that's what the devil's hoping we'll do. And uh, of course, as you know, that's why I wrote the book, National Sunday Law. And uh, uh, what will happen is God is perfecting his people, uh, the five wise virgins, the foolish virgins will go along with that law, but he's going to make the five wise virgins like David against Goliath. Uh, notice in the parable in Matthew 25, five of the virgins are wise and five are foolish, even though the prophet says the majority will forsake us. Uh, nevertheless, the, it'll, uh, we'll be in the minority against the world like David against Goliath. And uh, what kind of people will the 144,000 be? Will they be like David was against Goliath? Yes. Now, how nervous was David when he went up against Goliath? <laughs> Would you say? Okay. And so he uh, <laughs> he goes. His father sends him to bring some food to his brothers and see how they're doing. They're fighting in Saul's army. And this great big giant comes out. About how tall was Goliath? Yeah, about nine feet tall. And um, I don't know, maybe that was up there somewhere. Uh, so his kneecap would be about here. Kneecap right here. So I would be about this tall for Goliath, something like that. And uh, so David comes out, and when he's talking with his brothers, Goliath comes out bellowing, uh, Send me a man! You know, he bells bellows and, and uh, to, we might fight together and all Israel are trembling and so David he's been close to God and he said who is this uncircumcised Philistine that defies the armies of the living God he's not afraid because he has a close plus before that time he has already been anointed to be what king he knows that he's already anointed as the king of Israel Therefore, he's got a responsibility, even though he's just a shepherd boy and doesn't have, you know, just a boy in their sight. He's still the king of Israel in God's sight. And so he must act like a king. And who is he to go up against this giant? Uh, he's never worn armor or anything or had or like that. And so you know the story, how he goes up to Saul. He says, let no man's heart fail from this man. Uh, thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And then Saul says, he's a giant, he's a warrior from his youth, and you're just a lad, a boy. And uh, David tells about how he killed the lion and the bear, and so forth. And he said, it'll be the same with this Philistine. So Saul himself is taller than all the rest of the soldiers, and Saul has no hope whatsoever. And if David loses, what happens to all the Israelites? They become slaves. But Saul knows it's hopeless anyway, so... He said, well, 
Go, and the Lord be with thee. So Saul puts his heavy armor on David, all this big armor, and he goes out there with his on, but he can't go with his heavy stuff. And so he turns around and puts it off, and he gets some five smooth stones, and he goes out there to meet a man that's nine, probably over nine feet tall. Now, how would you feel going out at a man to a man like that who's gonna if he if he only can get his hands on you? If he can just get his hands on you, he can rip you into two pieces. And so you might be tempted to be nervous. Do you believe that? You might be tempted to be nervous. The devil might tempt you to be nervous. But, and I'm sure the devil tried to tempt David to be nervous. But David was filled with the word of God and the, the, the glory of God. And so he goes out. And by the way, let me tell you something shocking. The prophet reveals that the weakest of the 144,000 will be like David. If you're going to be faithful and not go along with the Sunday law, it means that you'll receive the seal of God. It means that you'll also receive the latter rain. And in Zechariah, it reveals that the weakest of those who receive the latter rain will be like David. But what about those who aren't so bashful as you are? What will they be like, your fellow Adventists? It says they will be like the angel of the Lord and like God. Absolutely no fear at all like David had. No fear. And so we won't be going to kill a Goliath like David did. We'll be going door to door, which makes us so nervous now, ringing doorbells. But you'll be so filled with the Spirit of God. Uh, the most uh, bashful of you will be like David, and the rest of you will be like the angel of God. You'll have no fear whatsoever. You'll ring the doorbell, and we'll talk about that later. Nevertheless, David goes up, and the way he acted and what he said represents God's 144,000. And this, watch closely, because this is the way you will be. And pray, by the way, pray for the latter rain. Amen. Pray for the early rain and the latter rain, which just means the baptism of the Holy Spirit to give you all the wisdom and power that you need and love that you need to reach people for with the three angels' messages. Pray for that, and God will give it to you. He says, ask, and you shall what? Receive. So David goes up, and the Goliath sees somebody coming, and he looks at him, and finally he gets close enough, and he sees it's just a boy with a stick. And how does that make Goliath feel? Angry. Imagine somebody this tall coming to, up to you with a stick. If you're a man like Goliath. I don't know how tall David was, but he was no giant like Goliath. And so he's angry and he pulls his helmet up and he says, Come to me, I'll give your carcass to the beasts of the field. And so he curses him by all of his gods that he knows about. And, and he invites him to come so he can tear him to pieces. And now David, it says he hastes and he puts his hand in the bag and he puts a stone in there and he says, to me with a sword and a spear, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts whom you have defied. This day will I take your head from you and these armies will know that there is a God in Israel. The weakest of you will be like that as you ring doorbells, the weakest. The rest of you will be like the angel of God. Isn't that beautiful? Pray for the latter rain. And then the prophet says, act out your prayers. That means when you pray for it, don't wait until after the Sunday law to start doing that. Do it right away. And you'll have all right away all the, the, the boldness and courage and love that you need. 
And so that's like David and Goliath, like God's people when the latter rain falls. Um, now, the latter rain, I've studied this ever since I was a teenager because, because I had a love for my mother and father. When I, like I said, I'm a fifth-generation Seventh-day Adventist, my mother's father was an Adventist minister, but that didn't save me at all. I didn't know the Lord until I was 18, my first year of college. Now, I was not ever a real bad person. Uh, I was a good student and all of that. I was just lost, that's all. <laughs> you can be a good person and still be lost. And really, you can't really be good, but, I mean, in people's eyes, they look at you as a good, even though you're lost. So... Um, I had no peace. Now, as a child, I did have peace. I believe all little children have peace. You know why? Because they're not running away from God. It's only when they get old enough to know what they're doing and then willfully ignore the Lord, neglect Him, neglect to study about Him, or refuse Him. Only then do they lose that sweet peace of mind. But little children... God has given them peace of mind, and I had it as a little child. But when I got to be about 13, 12 or 13, I lost it. And I couldn't figure out why I lost it. I remembered what it was like to have that peace. It was so beautiful. And I couldn't figure out now why I'm, why I'm so restless and empty and empty and, 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 you know, just nothing there like a black hole and all of his feelings of guilt and emptiness. I couldn't figure that out. And I thought, how can I get that peace again? I didn't know. I didn't know that Jesus had anything to do with it. But Jesus had everything to do with it. Isn't that right? Everything. I didn't know that until my first year of college when I was 18 years old. So I went about five years with emptiness and blackness and restlessness and nothing. Five years like that. It's a horrible way to live, isn't it? It's really a living death um, without Jesus. And so uh, God allowed me to get this, this depression and darkness and guilt and all this. He allowed it to get worse and worse and worse, like I talked about this morning. And why did God allow that? To make me feel my what? Need of Him. You see, I, I was searching for peace in the wrong place with selfishness or with things of the world or, you know, riding motorcycles or this or that, but nothing gives you peace. But finally, it got so bad that one day I was in college and I went to church school all my life except uh, the first two years I was in a public school, but all the rest of my life I was in church school except my first year of college. I stayed in a public college in Richmond. I thought, I'd be free and drive my parents' car and everything would be great. Well, it was the worst year of my life, but it turned out to be the best year of my life because through that horrible depression and emptiness, it made me feel my need. And at the time, I didn't know need of what. I should have known, shouldn't I? Growing up in church school, I should have known. But finally, I, I was so depressed one day, I thought, the thought came to me, I wonder if there's any Seventh-day Adventist books in this library. Just from curiosity. I didn't have anything else to do. I had maybe two hours between classes. So I asked somebody, where's the religious books? They said they put them way up there in the 
a little tiny room so that nobody would be bothered with them. So I climbed up this stairway, a dark stairway, just a little tiny room, and I t pulled the bulb and turned on the light, and there was a window there and some books, and I finally I looked and I saw R.H. R -H on the end of a book. What does R.H. mean? Review and Herald, and that got my curiosity. God works with curiosity, doesn't he? And so I pulled that book out. It was called Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing. And I opened it up, and I read and looked at the pictures, and I saw pictures of Jesus. And I was looking at his face. I was looking for, for peace and love. And I saw that in his face. And I weighed my life in the balance. And the devil got scared, and he said, If you make a total surrender to God, you'll be miserable for the rest of your life. And I believed that. God allowed me to believe that. The devil said, don't make a surrender. You'll be miserable. You'll be miserable. And I thought, well, I'm miserable now. I'd rather be miserable with God than miserable with the devil. And so I bowed my head and I said, Lord, take me right now. I claim Jesus. I claim Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I claim his blood, his grace, his robe of righteousness. Take me. Take every thought, take everything, the bad habits. Take them all. Take me. I claim Jesus. And I opened my eyes, expecting to be miserable for the rest of my life. And I had perfect peace. I had that very peace I've been looking for for five years. And I, I thought, man, I don't feel worthy to feel like this. I should be depressed. But the Lord spoke to me. He said, no, now you know me. And Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And uh, that was the beginning of it. I started reading the Bible and books about Jesus. I read that whole book, Thoughts from the Mount of Blessing, and it fed my soul. That was just the beginning of my spiritual life when I was 18. And so now uh, he works with you and you grow and grow until now God wants us to pray not only for the former rain but for the latter rain. Are we in the time of the latter rain now? Yes, we are. So you can pray for it. Zechariah 10, verse 1. It says, ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. So now, um, what the devil is doing, the devil is not going to bring the Sunday law in the open until he thinks he can get away with it. He's holding it undercover. You don't hear anything about it now because it's undercover. But when the devil thinks he can get away with it, he's going to bring it in the open and he'll push it hard and fast is what he'll do. And then it'll be all over the place and then our work will be more open. Then you'll go door to door and you'll just ring the doorbell and the people will come and, and you'll say, hi, do you, have you heard about this Sunday law? They'll say, yeah, we know all about it. It's all in the news. And then you'll say, I'll tell you what it means. And you'll just tell them right out exactly what it means. This law is the mark of Rome's authority. They, she has changed God's Sabbath to Sunday, uh, claiming to be above God's law. You'll just spell it right out to them with your mouth. Maybe show them a few Bible texts and you'll say the seal of God is just the opposite from the mark of the beast. The seal of God is his holy Sabbath right in the middle of his law, the fourth commandment. Remember the seventh, the Sabbath to keep it holy. The seventh day is the Sabbath and you'll show them. Um, and so they'll, they'll see it and they'll say, praise God, you've come. Praise God, you've come. And you'll even tell them that this law, those who go along with this law are going to receive the mark of the beast. And those that get the mark of the beast, it says here, will have the seven last plagues and be lost. 
You'll just spell it right out to them. And they will be uh, ready to accept it. And they'll accept it immediately. And because God's been working with them, and they'll join you. Now, will the government ever take over our church buildings? Yes, they will. The papal-controlled government, the time will come when they'll take over all of our buildings, hospitals, schools, offices. They'll take over everything. And we won't have nice buildings to meet in, but God doesn't care. How many buildings are going to be translated to heaven? None. But God doesn't need buildings. Uh, the government will take them, but wherever God's people are is his Seventh-day Adventist church in that local area. And so wherever they meet, some will meet in jail, some will meet in caves or woods or fields or homes. It doesn't matter at that time. I'm glad we have church buildings now, aren't you? We have them now. Praise the Lord. Um, but we still need to get the message out. Now, back in Sister White's day, they didn't get the message out because they didn't want persecution. And their prayer was answered. They didn't get persecution, and they didn't get the message out, and Jesus didn't come. And they're all dead. God didn't want it like that. He wanted them to be in heaven. But we have a choice. Now the ball has come to us. What are we going to do? May God help us get it out. Amen. Praise the Lord. And I believe that that's why he's been pushing the books out 38 million in 65 languages. I didn't do that. I mean, I wrote it on paper and, and took it down to a little printer and gave him $1,000 for 1,000 books. And then it just grew from there. But God has been doing all that. And he gets all the praise because it's his message, not ours. And, uh, of course, he works in many ways, TV, radio, working with your neighbors, any way that, that God can work and use you, he'll do it. Uh, so when the devil thinks he can get away with it, he'll bring it in the open, and you'll, you'll see when he does bring in the open, what will the ten virgins start to do? Wake up. And when they wake up, start to wake up, uh, the wise virgins will say, what have we been doing? Look at this. Here's this law uh, coming in the open now. We've been having wonderful meetings, but we haven't re been reaching the people. We let the evangelists do that, and we let the pa pastor do that. But what have we been doing? Uh, almost nothing. And so let's meet together, and we'll pray, and then we'll go door to door, and we'll reach the people. And the foolish virgins will say, no, don't do that. We don't want to uh, upset anybody. We just want to preach love. How long will it take for them to say things like that? They're saying it right now. We just want to preach love. Is the third angel's message love? Yes, it is. If you withhold that message from people, is that love? A man is floating down the uh, river, Niagara River, about to fall off to his death. If you scream at him uh, and give him a warning, is that love? The answer is yes. That is love. If your little child is about to get run over, uh, somebody's backing out, your wife is backing the car up, and she's going to run over your little child, and you scream at her to stop, is that action of yours? Is that love? That is love. I mean, you can scream as loud as you want, and that is love. If you don't scream, is that love? If you just sit there and watch your child be killed, is that love? If you sit there and watch the man fall off to his death, is that love? No, that's not love. Love will do whatever it takes 
to open people's eyes so they'll be saved and not lost. So giving the third angel's message is love. So people saying, oh, don't preach the third angel's message. Just preach love. That's an oxymoron, isn't it? If you know what that word means. That's a contradiction. So if you really love people, this is the very message, the third angel, we will be giving. And uh, so here, uh, now the virgins start to wake up. So the wise virgins do. They start going door to door, door to door, and doing what I mentioned. And people start joining them. The honest join them. And uh, we lose, tr uh, lose track of the foolish virgins. And so this work of the wise virgins stirs up the Sunday preachers angry and they stir up their people to to persecute God's people but they don't care why because the weakest of them are like who David and the rest are like the angel of the Lord filled with the spirit of God filled with the love of God and love casts out all what fear casts it out and there is no fear in love and so finally the whole world learns about the message and even many of us will get arrested and taken to court and they'll put us in front of the court and say, why are you not going along with the law of the land to save our nation from chaos and ruin? And the Holy Spirit will give you exactly what to say. And the, the TV cameras will be on you and they'll be watching you all over the world free of charge. They won't charge you a penny for it. And you'll be giving the three angels messages right there in the courtroom and the TV cameras go all over the country free of charge. Isn't that wonderful? So the Lord will use the devil to spread his message. Plus, angels, uh, the prophet reveals, it says angels will do a work that men might have had the privilege of doing. Did you ever think of that? Now, there's over 6,000 languages in the world. Did you know that? How many languages do Seventh-day Adventists speak around the world? Less than 800. We speak less than 800 languages, but there's over 6,000. Um... And even if we could speak 6,000 languages, there's not enough of us to reach the people. And even if there was, we can't even go to nations like Afghanistan and Egypt and all these. Do, uh, I mean, the Muslims, they'll kill you if you do that, even if you could speak their language. And there's not enough of us. So is God going to send angels in human form and go door to door to help us? The answer is yes. It says angels will do a work that men might have done. Another quote says, the armies of the living God take the field. Isn't that beautiful? And that will be, the prophet says, that'll be, when this happens, it'll be very encouraging to God's people. Just imagine you're going door it says our bread and water will be sure you, you can't go home anymore. They've taken that. Uh, they've taken all our buildings. You're just going door to door and a group of us are together. God will have us together in groups. I like that for encouragement. Most of us won't be alone. We'll be in groups and we need that. Even the angels go two by two. And so we'll be going door to door and uh, you're hot and you're uh, tired and maybe hungry, but uh, God always gives you food and what you need. You don't know where you're going to sleep. It doesn't matter. God will provide. And so finally you face and uh, you don't care. You just keep going, keep going. You're looking for the gems. You know what a gem is? An honest soul, an honest person. You're looking for those gems and you find some of those gems and they say, thank God you've come and they join us right away. And they, God helps them grow up real fast. They become Seventh-day Adventists real quick. And so uh, you're hot and you're tired and you keep going half of the day. So finally, you look across the street and there's two men about seven, eight feet tall going door to door with you. And you look at those men. Look at there. 
They look like Seventh-day Adventists. They're the tallest men I've ever seen. And you learn that they're telling the people the same thing you are. Angels of God. It says, we'll do a work that men might have done. It says, the armies of the living God take the field. It also says that Satan uh, and his angels will also appear in human form, but that won't bother us any. Now, finally, after all of this, finally, probation for the world closes. When the world learns the issues and makes up their mind, bang, probation closes. Then what happens? The first what? Plague is poured out. We won't know when probation is closed until the first plague is poured out. When that happens, uh, then you'll know probation is closed. And what is that first plague? Sores all over their body. This is in Revelation chapter 16. 16. And so first one is sores. When you see that, you'll know probation is closed. Our work is finished. You can't preach to anyone anymore. It's gone. It's over. Now, the only thing we can do is just stay together. God will bring us food and water, and we'll just wait till Jesus comes. And so the second plague, what is that? The waters turn to blood. The third plague, uh, uh, the streams turn to blood. And the sores, men are gnawing their tongues for pain, and they turn on their spigot for some relief, and out comes the oozing blood of a dead man. And so then the fourth plague, what is that? The sun scorches men with great heat. They honored the day of the sun. Now God gives them sun. They plan to kill us and shed our blood, so God gives them blood to drink. Every plague is geared against those who receive the mark of the beast. Then the sixth plague is darkness on the seat of the beast. They've chosen darkness. God gives them darkness. The sixth plague also in that time is the battle of Armageddon, where uh, the prophet saw copies of a paper uh, spread around the different nations for the leaders to sign, and after a certain date at midnight, Anyone, anywhere has permission to shoot us on sight. Now, they have the gun laws, which they're fighting over these gun laws and all that uh, chaos. But the more they fight over the gun laws, the more guns people are getting. They're not going to limit guns. Guns will be everywhere. There's millions of them now. They'll have plenty of guns. Uh, but God's people, will we depend on guns? No. Uh, after pro, uh, the Sunday law and after the de even the death decree, they'll come to kill us. And we'll be in little groups, and they'll, some of them will anticipate and say, well, the law goes into effect at midnight, but why wait till midnight? We'll just kill them. Now we're going to kill them anyway. And so they come at us with their guns, and what do we do? Do we reach for our gun? No. It says we lift our hand in the name of the Lord, and their swords fall, swords fall like straw. Isn't that wonderful? And we're glorified, and they fall at our feet, and they can't even look at us like Moses. And it's just wonderful. The prophet says the glories of the day of Pentecost and the horrors of the dark ages will be blended. No wonder we'll be together in little groups for our encouragement. And Jesus will be very close to us and the angels. And some of us will be arrested and put in prison uh, from going door to door. <coughs> door. <clears throat> they'll call the police and the police will catch some of them and put them in prison. And they'll curse at them and so forth and leave them in there to starve. But guess what happens? Angels bring them food. Can you imagine an, you're laying there and the angel appears and puts your food there by you and says, hold on a little longer. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And then he disappears. Would you like that? That'd be very encouraging. That's going to happen. So don't worry about it. Don't worry about anything. Keep praising the Lord. And so, uh, but most of us will be in groups. 
And uh, then finally, the uh, sixth plague is the Battle of Armageddon. The seventh plague is the great earthquake. And the prison walls tumble down and God's people are set free. And the wicked are screaming and crying and trying to kill themselves. And God's people see a little black cloud in the sky and it's getting closer and closer. Can you picture what that little black cloud looks like? Do you know how you'll feel when you see that black cloud? You're about to see the face of God when you look at that because God is in it, the Son of God. And it gets closer and closer and bigger and brighter. And then you see angels all over the sky and you hear people screaming, crying, and, and you say, look, this is our God. We've waited for him. He will save us. Here's Jesus. Won't that be something? And then you see Jesus, uh, and you see his face, and you see he's got a trumpet in one hand, he's got a sickle in the other hand. And does Jesus blow on that trumpet? Yes, he does. He'll blast on that trumpet. And the very last time he blasts on it, he says, Awake, awake, ye that sleep in the dust, and arise. And he blasts on that trumpet. And then you'll look at him, and you'll see the dead come right out of the ground. There they are, those who love Jesus. There's your, de there's your dear mother. Look, there's your mother there. Won't it be wonderful to see our mothers again? There she is. There's your mother. And there's your loved ones. There's your friends. Praise God. And then you find yourself lifted up off the ground, and we're on our way up in the sky to meet Jesus. And does Jesus bring us uh, up into a great big chariot? Or does he bring us into a vehicle? Will Jesus take us to heaven in a vehicle? The answer is yes, he will. And what does that vehicle uh, look like? It's a great big chariot you can read about in the book Early Writings. In Early Writings, it describes this chariot. The chariot has great big wheels that turn. And what are those wheels made out of? Angels. And the chariot has great big wings that go up and down. And what are they made out of? Angels. Can you imagine a, a whole vehicle made out of angels? And we'll be inside. There'll be millions of people. All of God's people will be in that one chariot. It must be huge to f uh, hold millions of people. And this great big chariot, imagine, as it, as it goes up through space faster than the speed of light, the uh, wings as they go up and down, the angels in there cry, Holy, 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 Lord God. And the they turn, the angels Holy. Lord God Almighty. And the thing goes up through space faster than the speed of light. We're going to go up through the hole in Orion. And uh, it takes like 600 years to get her from there. Will it take us years to get to heaven? No, one week. And so you can see how fast the thing is going. And we watch. And by the way, is there anybody that's worthy to drive that chariot? Yes, there is. There's one man that's worthy. And he has scars in his hand. Can you picture Jesus driving that chariot? Won't that be wonderful? You won't be envious of him. You won't try to push him aside and you for you to drive the chariot. You don't want to do that, do you? Oh, no, you're happy for Jesus to drive that chariot. You're so happy for that. You just want to be one of his little children in that chariot. And finally, we see that we're coming up to the city of God. And in the future uh, distance, we see it. And it looks like it's sitting right on top of a rainbow. And we get closer and closer. And then the chariot stops and we get out. And we form a hollow square. You can read about this in the book Early Writings. <clears throat> and Jesus will stand in the middle of that square. He's very, very tall. He's taller than all the angels. He's taller than us. He's taller than Satan. He's very tall, and he's very beautiful. The Son of God will stand there in the middle, and we'll all look at him. And then he'll have a ceremony. He'll come and give us all a harp. 
hand it to us with his own hand, and he'll come and put a crown on our heads, and you'll look up and you'll see Jesus, and you two will be looking right at each other, just you and him, nobody else, and you'll feel him put the crown on your head. Won't that be a happy day? And uh, then after that little ceremony, then we'll all go into one of the 12 gates of the city of God, and each gate is made out of one what? Pearl. Now the city gate uh, walls are, uh, in the amazing facts, I believe, gave, measured it from the description of the Bible. The walls of the city are 275 feet tall. And I'm sure each gate is that tall as well. Imagine the gate 275 feet tall and probably that square, one solid pearl. A pearl is the only gem that was made through suffering. And that pearl represents Jesus. Suffering. It caused the oyster suffering to make the pearl. It caused Jesus' suffering to be the gate. He is the gate. And he'll lay his hand and he'll open that gate. It means he opens himself. And we go through himself into the city of God. And then when you get in the city of God, uh, through the gate, you'll look around. And what will you see? There's the mountain of God. There's the throne of God. There's the river of life. There's the tree of life. You'll look around, you'll see all the angels. And there's your dear mother, and there's your dear people and your loved ones that are there. And you'll say, look, I'm in heaven. I'm really in heaven, sweetheart. We made it. We're really here. And how will you feel? Can you imagine how you'll feel once you're there? And when will it ever end? It'll never end. And you'll we'll be there for a thousand years. And you know what we'll be doing. But cling to Jesus. Amen. No matter what you go through, it will be worth it. Amen. It will. Praise the Lord. It will be worth it. In closing, I want to turn, turn with me to the book of Revelation, the very last chapter, chapter 22. And I love to read these words where it describes these things. Chapter 22, verse 1. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. What kind of healing will we need there? We'll grow up. Well, we won't be pygmies forever. We'll grow up until you'll be... As tall as maybe Adam and Eve will all grow up. That's the healing we'll have. Verse 3. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. And they shall see what? His face. Imagine seeing the face of God. And it says every ambition will be realized. That means everything. If you want to come and sit on God's lap, you can do it. If you want to walk hand in hand with Jesus, you can do it. If you want to fly with him to other planets, you can do it. Anything you want, you can do it. And it's so close. Uh, it says, see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, neither need or candle, nor light of the sun. For the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. Praise God. Verse 7, behold, I come quickly. Blessed is he that keepeth the sayings of the prophecy of this book. Why did Jesus say, I come quickly 2,000 years ago? Because all those people are dead now. The very moment you die, it's virtually for you, it, even though you're dead and you don't know anything, it will seem to you that immediately you'll be woken up, you'll jump forward in time, and you'll see Jesus come. To the person who dies, like my mother, 
She just died there at the kitchen, at the dining room table, and she's dead now. She doesn't know anything. But to her, it will seem that the very instant, like to her, it'll seem like she's looking at these papers, and all of a sudden, she sees Jesus coming. It seemed just like that. And that's the way. That's why Jesus said, I come quickly. At the moment of death, uh, or him coming is very soon. They shall see his face. And finally, let's go over to verse 17. And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him that heareth say, come. And let him that is thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life. What's the next word? Freely. Beautiful. And then finally, verse 20. He that testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.